According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah. This morning we are in chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19. Join me there. I'm having a brief moment of panic that I still have last week's slideshow. Nope. All right, we're good. Isaiah 19. <clears throat> the Oracle Concerning Egypt. Continuing, continuing our sightseeing tour of the Middle East without the airfare, without the jet lag. Our message today brings us to Egypt. By the way, it's going to continue into chapter 20, Egypt and Ethiopia both in chapter 20, and the relationship between chapter 18 and 19 um, I think is important uh, to understand. Last week we dealt with a land of warring wings that's sometimes labeled as Ethiopia. Uh, This week we're going to deal with Egypt. Next week is both Ethiopia and Egypt combined in chapter 20, and we're left to ask ourselves, well, why are we going back? Didn't we cover this ground already? And we'll answer that next week. Uh, But The point is, we're going to see, as we have been looking at, that our message today in chapter 19 is bringing us into the far future, bringing us into the eschatological future. We've seen the eschatological prophecies to Babylon, to the Philistines, to uh, Edom, to the uh, Edomites, to the Moabites, uh, recently the the unnamed nation that you might have as Ethiopia in, uh, in your pericope headings of your modern Bibles. Uh, what we studied last week, the land of warring wings, the, the tall people and fearsome people of chapter 18. Uh, today, we remain in eschatology, and that is the future, the prophetic events, the things that have not yet taken place, the great tribulation of Israel that follows the rapture of the church. And so once again, today, we are looking into the future and seeing the history as God has already written it. God has already written it before it ever happened, and we get uh, the blessings to study it in advance. And that's what we're going to be doing once again here today. Before we get started, let's ask the Father to humble us, to open the minds of our understanding. This is not an easy chapter. Neither was last week. None of these are. So let's ask for his help to understand. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, it is a uh, tremendous comfort to be your child, to identify with who you are, to embrace the revelation of your word. I thank you, Father, that you are God and there is none other, and that you have revealed your plan from Alpha to Omega, even from the end to the beginning. We are so finite. We are enslaved by time. We are creatures of time, bound by time. We are on a progression forward. We can't go back and turn back the clock or redo our past. But Father, you tell the end from the beginning. And you are not limited uh, in the ways that we are. And you have already written the conclusion, the omega, the glorification of your Son for all eternity. And with that in view, Father, each step of the way, you are bringing us one day closer. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the book of Isaiah, the tremendous prophet that he was, and the testing he went through. We're going to see that this week and next the uh, humiliation he endured so that he would stay faithful to deliver your message. 
I ask that we might become imitators and we might embrace uh, the truth that he communicates. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we begin with a flyby. We begin with a swift cloud, what I'm calling a flyover. A cloud flyover by Jesus Christ throws Egypt into a demoralized, hopeless tyranny. The first four verses of chapter 19, and it's, it is 25 verses long, so we'll see how well we do to get through 25 verses in one session. I'm comforted by the fact that if we slip the, the pace a little bit, uh, next week we'll bail us out, because chapter 20 only has six verses. So we, uh, we should do pretty well. But the oracle concerning Egypt, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and to spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. All right, we'll stop with that. That's verses 1 through 4. We'll move on to verses 5 and following under the second main observation. There's really four main observations I'm making out of this chapter. And here's the first one. A cloud flyover by Jesus Christ, which throws Egypt into a demoralized, hopeless um, tyranny. A demoralized and hopeless tyranny where they are left under the dominion of this cruel one, this wicked one. The character that's uh, spoken of in verse 4, the cruel master, the mighty king who rules over them. Now, part of the metaphor or part of the imagery we want to identify, and sometimes we're very quick to do this uh, because we're dispensationalists and we, we pay attention to clouds and we pay attention to the air versus the ground. And that's a good thing. I don't ever want to dissuade you from doing that, all right? But the process of doing that will leave us weak in this chapter, all right? So we're going we're gonna to teach it and then hopefully we'll understand it for what it is. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, let me explain. We are in the body of Christ. We are in the church. And Jesus Christ is coming back to take us home. He promised the disciples in John 14 that he is going to prepare a place for us. All right? And that he went to the cross. He died. He rose again on the third day. He ascended to heaven. And since 33 AD, Jesus Christ has been at the Father's right hand preparing our heavenly dwelling. And he says in John 14, when I come again, I will receive you to myself. Take you where I am, that you may be with me also. He's going to take us to heaven. And that's what we call the rapture of the church. And it's described in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's described in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a lot of study on the rapture of the church. The point being, though, is that when he comes for us, he does not land on the earth. It's very important. He does not land on the earth. We actually meet the Lord in the air. That, he is, that we are snatched up in a moment, the twinkling of an eye. Okay? If you've never had this doctrine before, it's kind of exciting, the idea that we're going to launch through the, the roof of this place at some point. All right, that's why I drive a convertible. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go, okay? An old mechanic of mine called it the rapture-ready vehicle. And, but that's the thing. We're looking forward to that great blessed hope, 
the great blessed hope for the church. And the contrast for that is the second advent of Jesus Christ where he does land on the earth. And when he lands on the earth, we know exactly where he's going to land. It's the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. It's the same mountain that he ascended from when the disciples watched him ascend on that Sunday in 3380. It's the same mountain he's going to land on, and he's going to do battle at that time. The armies of the earth are going to be assembled, and there's a whole campaign called Armageddon that leads into the the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so those two future events are huge, all right? And some people try to blend them, and they get very confused with the process. I like to keep them doctrinally. The Bible keeps them separate. But I like to use the difference between meeting the Lord in the clouds, whereby he takes us back to heaven, and where he lands on the earth. To me, that's huge. That's a monster distinction to be made. And it's a benefit that we can cling to that distinction, all right? But in Isaiah 19, we've got to understand a few other things that are taking place and consider what some of the fulfillments might be with the cloud that's spoken of here. What is the time setting for Isaiah 19? Is it, is it already fulfilled by the time of the first century? Is it still waiting fulfillment? Was it fulfilled in, in the, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem? Is it still waiting fulfillment? Probably nine out of every ten commentaries you read say, well, it was fulfilled in the captivity when Nebuchadnezzar swept them all away because Egypt was conquered, first first by the Assyrians, then by the the, uh, Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, okay? There's no shortage of conquest over Egypt. What's the passage talking about here, okay? Well, I'll tell you, it's talking still about... um, eschatology is talking about the tribulation of Israel, or at least the post-rapture history of Israel. And some of that might get more complicated as well. But let's deal with the clouds. First of all, riding on a swift cloud places his activity in another dimension from his horseback earthly conquest. I believe it's eschatological, but it's different from Revelation chapter 19. Because the language is different. If I try to blend it with Revelation 19, I end up with some of the same confusion people run into when they try to make it a Nebuchadnezzar application or an Assyria application or a Greek application or a Roman application or take your pick. There were plenty of conquerors over Egypt. But as we're going to see the context for this, picking up from chapter 18 and moving into chapter 20, is, is our hermeneutical clue that tells us we're still dealing with the end times. Like we did with Philistia, like we did with Moab, like we did with, with uh, Babylon, like we've basically been doing ever since we hit chapter 13. The prophet Isaiah has been looking ahead to the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right? Riding on a swift cloud places this activity in another dimension from his horseback earthly conquest. Hold your finger here and let's look at Revelation 19. If you're not familiar with it, I can't give a comprehensive teaching on it this morning, but we should at least know where it is, and you can write your own name in there. There's a handful of passages in the Scripture you can write your name in, and here's one of them in Revelation chapter 19. But this this warfare we're studying today is in a different dimension. It's not the physical human realm. It's going to be in the invisible angelic realm that this warfare takes place. All right? And I'll explain that as we see that the effect of it is not earthly wounds, uh, physical wounds, but it's actually a spiritual uh, fear, a loss of their demonic empowerment. And we'll see that here shortly. All right, Revelation 19. I like to, uh, some of these verses I even like to adapt in wedding ceremonies. 
Uh, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to, the, to, to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come <clears throat> and his bride has made herself ready. And this, of course, is speaking of the church. Once we are taken from earth and we are being prepared, we are dressed in white, we are glorified, we are made perfect, ready for our Savior. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And what a delight that when we get to heaven, we stand at the judgment seat and all of our wood, hay, stubble gets burned away. And all that's left and remains is the gold, silver, and precious stones, is the beauty where we get to be dressed in white for all eternity. And all the past and all the dread and all the guilt, it's all gone. What a, what a delight. In the consequence of that, get past verse 9 and verse 10. Here we get to verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire on his head or many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. Let me tell you, when he comes back at second advent, he's not going to come as a babe in a manger. All right? The virgin birth entrance in the world, that was once and once only. When he comes back the second time, this is it. He's going to come with power and great glory. He's going to come riding on the white horse and we're going to follow after him. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Okay, Same language from the bride being dressed in fine linen, bright and clean. Just a few verses earlier. Compare verse 8 to verse 11. So write your own name in here. This is you. All right, You are spotless and white because you are in Christ. You are the bride of Christ. You know how to ride a horse? <laughs> I'm kind of terrible at it and i'm hoping that i got some lessons between now and then all right the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen and white and clean were following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of god the almighty tribulation of israel is a time of unparalleled wrath upon this earth all right Well, there's more. We'll let that go for now. But consider, if you've never been to war, or even if you have been to war, this uh, is something you've never experienced, right? I've been to war, came back, got married, happy to do so. But the first war I went through was quite a bit different when you are still in your mortal body and you know you can get shot and hurt and killed and dead and, and, and not go to see your bride when the whole thing's over with, okay? This war is going to be a whole lot better as we're going to be clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be perfect even as Christ is perfect. So think how fun it'll be to go into war bulletproof, immortal, right? And that's the, uh, that's the, the delight of what we have to look forward to. So in Revelation 19, we're talking in an earthly scope, in an earthly context, in an earthly dimension in the physical universe, right? Where we are engaging the armies of the earth in an earthly physical battle. But the battle of Armageddon, or the campaign of Armageddon, includes both human and angelic components. And the spiritual warfare of what's going to take place is is extraordinary. It's not often taught, okay? We're going to teach it this morning. We're going to start to broaden our thinking, to start to think in the invisible realm as well as the visible realm. And this cloud 
that God sends over Egypt, that the Lord sends over Egypt, is part of the spiritual dimension of the warfare in the tribulation of Israel. All right? And it's going to have an effect on the Egyptians. Similar to how God's discipline on Israel will have an effect on the Jews. Okay? And this is exciting stuff. And it's stuff that's not often thought about when we talk about the battle that takes place. So, let's put this together now. Again, um, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. So there is a, a spiritual dimension to this in the, in the metaphor of the cloud. And then there is the anticipation, the dread, that moment that you know it's coming, it's coming, it's... Okay? Now, if you hold that tension too long, it kind of goes away and dissipates. But that's the tension. He's about to come, all right? It's like the, the, the fist is clenched, the arm is drawn back, and you just know, man, that, that right hook is coming, and man, it's going to hurt. And this is what Egypt has to deal with. Wow, the Lord is coming. And so the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Okay? Forget the Egyptian human soldiers okay, that are part of the Egyptian human army, the earthly army. What about the demons that empower those soldiers? What about, because in the tribulation, we've got mostly demoniacs that are assembling in, at Armageddon and, and, and so forth. But here they're already, they've lost their power. They've lost their encouragement. They've lost their confidence because they've lost the very demonic power that has previously kept them strong. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. You know, if your opponent already is fearful and thinks they're going to lose, does that have an effect on the, on the battlefield? Right? It's like, why do the New England Patriots even show up next week? <laughs> they should just tremble before the, the Seahawk defense. All right? My sister sent me a Russell Wilson jersey and asked if I was going to wear it in the pulpit next week. chaos ensues when their demonic crutch is removed chaos ensues when their demonic crutch is removed it's true for any crutch humans get very dependent on their crutches on their sources of confidence okay take drugs away from an addict take alcohol away from an alcoholic take the demons away from a demoniac, all right? If you've been accustomed to using a a satanic source for your wisdom, for your encouragement, for your strength, for your your dominion, and that's gone, what do you have left? What do you have left? And by the way, this is not the first time he's done this. He did this at the Exodus. He did this in the conquest. This was a feature of Joshua's day that is often overlooked. I hope we don't ever overlook it again because it's what happened in Joshua's day is a foreshadowing what's going to happen at Armageddon. It's a foreshadowing what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes and conquers. So chaos ensues when their demonic crutch is removed. And so the idols are trembling. The heart of the Egyptians melts within them because that's where their idols had been, in their heart. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight against each, each, his brother and against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. 
Now, Jesus used that expression when he spoke about the beginning of birth pangs and he spoke about some of the lead up to the great tribulation. That's why I say it's conceivable that this event is a prelude to Armageddon, that this event is a prelude or part of it anyway, is even before Armageddon. This is some of the advanced party, some of the uh, the advanced artillery before Jesus descends on the on the uh, white horse. Because you have kingdom against kingdom and city against city, as the Lord speaks about in Matthew 24. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy, that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead, to mediums and to spiritists. They're going to try to get their demons back. They're going to try to get their demons back, but it's, it's just not going to happen. Interestingly enough, This is what happened in Joshua's day. This is what happened when God brought Israel out of Egypt the first time. Okay, In Exodus 23, take a look at this. Exodus 23, 27. Talk about the ultimate shock and awe strategy where you leave your adversary demoralized before they ever see a single ground troop because they are so utterly pummeled and... uh, and, uh, and beaten down by the air bombardment. I tell you, when I, when I was a part of Desert Storm, by the time we crossed from Saudi Arabia into Kuwait, uh, every every Iraqi we met was 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 shell shocked, absolutely deaf, first of all, and totally emaciated and starved, and uh, just begging to surrender and get fed, in most cases, and and totally deaf because of the twenty four hour bombing they've been subject to for thirty for thirty straight days. Well, that's nothing compared to what the Lord is going to do to them when he comes back. All right. Exodus 23, 27. Conquest of the land begins in a context that backs up to verse 20, but where I'm going to send an angel before you. Um, so you talk about a point, uh, a point man on, uh, on the patrol there. <laughs> All right, down to verse 27. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. In other words, they're going to be terrified before you even engage. They will be defeated mentally, defeated spiritually before the uh, physical uh, earthly soldiers ever engage in battle. I will send hornets ahead of you. Is that another angelic reference, or are those the actual insects? They will drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. All right, so there's a principle that's to be found there. Joshua chapter 2 and verse 11. Another corroborating passage that gives us this kind of detail. Joshua chapter 2. Here's their first city. They crossed the Jordan. They're going to go in there, and the first city they're going to take is the biggest, baddest, you know, most fortified city in the, in the place. That's Jericho. And uh, they send a couple of spies in, and they, they, uh, they're hiding in the, in the whorehouse, right? In the, the house of Rahab the harlot. And she hides them in faith. She brings them up to the roof. She stashes them in a, uh, among the, the flax, the stalks of flax. In verse 6, she brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of, of uh, flax, which she had laid in, or, in order on the roof. And so they're able to escape the, uh, the guards that were searching for them. 
Verse 8, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. How does she know that? How does this Jericho harlot know even who Yahweh is? It's a marvelous question, right? Yahweh has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen on us. In other words, she's testifying that scripture is fulfilled. That God promised this in Exodus 23 and it's happening It's happening right now in her city. So the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. You know, why why was Jericho so fortified? Large reason was because of Sihon and Og across the Jordan River, all right? And so they built up all these defenses. They built up all these, this monster fortress and they, they felt pretty good about themselves until they saw what Yahweh did to Sihon and Og across the river, what God did to Egypt in, in splitting the Red Sea. Now, all of that is foreshadowing because the whole world is going to see what God does globally when he reaches out with an outstretched arm and brings the Jews into the land. All right, at the second advent of Jesus Christ. The whole world is going to be like, like Jericho, shaking in their boots. So verse 11, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, Yahweh, your Elohim, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So there's the heavenly dimension, the earthly dimension, the spiritual realm, the physical realm. And God is the God of all of it. And so she says, please swear to me. And she asks these two spies for mercy. She asks for grace. She says, be merciful, spare us. Deal kindly, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And this is the covenant that she makes. And they agree to this. And she's protected, okay? You get into the next chapter and they march around, the walls come tumbling down, and they, you know, they blast the trumpet. They, they stormed in there. They devastated the city. They killed every man, woman, child, and animal, everything that breathes except Rahab and her household. They were rescued from the wrath to come, okay? In fact, she ends up marrying one of these spies and becomes a great-grandmother of, of King David. So, This is what we might expect then in Second Advent. It was the pattern in the Exodus. It was the pattern in the conquest. And it has its fulfillment when Christ comes back at Second Advent. Prior to the earthly campaigns in the physical realm comes the spiritual uh, warfare of what takes place. And the dread, the removal of the demonic empowerment, the removal of the demonic courage is crushed. It's gone. It's removed. And the human beings that are left are left without their crutch. So the consequence of this, Egypt is going to be left under the dominion of a cruel master and a mighty king. Egypt is going to be left under the dominion of a cruel master and a mighty king. Now, if I was financially motivated, I would uh, write a book about Isaiah 19.4. And I might even start to pursue some kind of a harbinger model and start to get on radio programs and start to market this the cruel master and the mighty king and uh (laughs) well 
That's not why we're here. All right? But this is what's promised. And when it unfolds, it will be observed for what it is. And those with truth will be able to point to this passage and say, aha, the Lord spoke of this. The Lord spoke of this. Okay? In a way that has not yet been done historically, at least as of 2015-80. All right? They've been in, uh, they've had a lot of tyrants over them. They've had a lot of dominion from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks. Alexander swept through here, all right, to the Romans. Pompey swept through here. Julius Caesar swept through here. A little sidetracked with Cleopatra, but they were here, all right. The British were here. The French were here. I mean, goodness. Napoleon conquered. A lot of people have been through Egypt. But the cruel master and mighty king is still eschatological. As per Isaiah 19, as per Jeremiah 46, 26, this character appears to be a restoration of the Pharaoh office. Jeremiah 46, 26, a restoration of the Pharaoh office. And Jeremiah's are parallel. We're going to be in Jeremiah when we wrap up Isaiah. But Jeremiah also has a, an eschatological prophecy of judgment against Egypt. And yet, it is beyond the Babylonian conquest, as is very clear because of Isaiah 40, uh, Jeremiah 46, 26. I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his officers. Afterward, however, it will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. There is a destiny beyond Babylon for Egypt a destiny of restoration, and a promise as in the days of old. I believe that's a restoration of the Pharaoh office. That Egypt is going to once again stand. Mitzrayim is going to once again stand. The firstborn of Ham is going to once again stand in a place of preeminence for its own sake. When's the last time the Egyptians ever ruled themselves for their own sake? See, because even after the Roman time, then they were swept through by the, the Muslim Arabs. Then they were swept through by the Turks. They were swept through by the Persians. They've been swept through again and again and again. And Egypt has been a plaything of various folks ever since. But they will be restored. This character appears to be a restoration of the Pharaoh office and may even be the Antichrist himself. May even be the Antichrist himself when you do the homework of Daniel chapter 11, verses 42 and 43. Wow, we sure seem to be flipping to a lot of prophets today. Well, that's because you have to. You have to compare Scripture to Scripture. God's not a liar and everything He says is true. And by comparing Scripture to Scripture, we get the total picture for all of this. Daniel 11, verses 42 and 43. Still future. Still eschatological. This is a fun chapter. I could spend a hour on this chapter. This is, um, and I'm going to be teaching this in Kiev. This is, this is fun because here we have the king of the north, the king of the south, king of the north, king of the south, king of the south, king of the north, king of the north, king of the south. And it's going back and forth, back and forth. It's like you're watching a tennis match, right? Your head's just going left, right, left, right, king of the north, king of the south, until all of a sudden, boom, <laughs> the king in verse 36. All of a sudden, there is a marker in the text that reaches out and slaps you and says, pay attention to this. 
okay, then the king will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. Okay? And you're looking at this and going, whoa, 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 wait a minute, is this north or south? Right? I've been going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The whole chapter I've been going back and forth. And then boom, the king. And we have what I call a prophetic shift. We have a marker in the text that leads us to a, a different, as a hermeneutical tool that identifies us that something has shifted in the application. In this case, we're no longer talking about Seleucids and, and Ptolemies. We're no longer talking about the Maccabean era. We've actually shifted forward to the end times. We've shifted forward into eschatology, shifted forward to Antichrist. The king there is Antichrist. And he will exalt and magnify himself. He's going to see himself as being God. He will prosper until the indignation is finished. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. No shortage of speculation on that. Um, Nor will he show regard for any other god. He will magnify himself above them all. Now, verse 40. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him. Now we resume the north and south doctrine. We resume the north-south imagery, but now they are hostile to Antichrist. And they both smash up against him, against Antichrist. And uh, the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, the horsemen, and many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. That's why when you watch the news and you see the chaos in Egypt, you see the chaos in Syria, it gets your attention. Because they are the modern day equivalents of the king of the south, the king of the north. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Eschatologically, there is territory that he won't be allowed to conquer. He'll have no problem throwing back this attack. King of the north, king of the south, they're going to simultaneously hit him from both sides. He destroys it. Antichrist isn't, is, doesn't sweat either of them. Even both of them together. He blows that off. But then he has filled with wrath and he goes forth to conquer this entire region except God in his grace rescues Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon for reasons that we've seen hints of already earlier in Isaiah. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and notice the land of Egypt will not escape. Now, I am making a hermeneutical connection between that verse 42, Daniel 11:42, and Isaiah 19 this morning. That in fact, this cruel tyrant, this master, this Lord that is spoken of in Isaiah 9 may actually be Antichrist himself or one of his regents. In connection with Daniel 11, Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans, just west of Egypt, and the Ethiopians, just south of Egypt, will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. All right, there's a fun chapter there, and if you want more, there's hours and hours of study to go into it. Okay, Not the purpose for this hour. But we are talking in Isaiah 19 about an eschatological fulfillment. Nothing you can point to in Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, nothing you can point to has a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 19. Jesus even spoke of it as being yet future when he said that abomination Daniel spoke of is still future. 
So Egypt is left under this dominion. Egypt's hopelessness is going to be manifest through environmental and political desperation. Verses 5 through 15. I'll get back to Isaiah now. Egypt's hopelessness is manifest through environmental and political desperation. The Nile's going to dry up. Their whole economy tanks. The nation starves. Everything depended on the annual flooding of the Nile. And... uh, The Nile is everything to Egypt. The waters from the sea will dry up and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. Everything perishes under this discipline. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry and driven away and be no more. The fishermen will lament. Those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn. Every facet of industry that's dependent upon from the fishing to the, to the uh, grain, to the flax, to the papyrus reeds, the export of paper, everything they exported. One of the wealthiest nations in the ancient world, but it needed the Nile or it had nothing. All those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn. Those who spread nets in the waters will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected. The pillars of Egypt will be crushed. The very uh, uh, foundation stones, the very things that uphold their economy, their culture, their wealth, gone. The hired laborers will be grieved in soul. So there's environmental desperation. Verses 5 through 10. The environmental judgment leaves Egypt economically destitute. The very thing Egypt boasted and relied upon has become useless to them. Sadly, I think we're no, de- we're no different. You know, we have an event and our stock market tanks and all of a sudden we're, we're demoralized. Our country, our society, and we find out very quickly where our faith has been and how many people give lip service to God, but faith is in their wealth, in their money, in their savings, in their assets. And if they can diversify their portfolio well enough, well, then they can never be harmed. And okay, one area goes, but another area is okay, and I'm, I'm safe, I'm insured, I'm covered. And so the whole thing tanks, and then what are you left with? Is your God money? The Federal Reserve? What is it that's backing up those investments, the money, that, the gold that so easily perishes? So the very thing Egypt boasted in and relied upon the most is becoming useless to them. And then, to top all that off, the change of government. The princes of Zoan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. (laughs) You end up with political advisors that that say, dude. (laughs) Oh, really? Wow. Wow. And you end up with boys. You end up with children that have taken the place of the grown-ups. You end up with fools. How can you men say to Pharaoh, I'm a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Well then, where are your wise men? I'd rather have them back. But see, here's the thing. In their idolatry, when they've lost their confidence in their idols, when they've lost confidence in their God, 
in the annual inundating of the, of the Nile, if there was ever a problem with the annual flood, they would blame that on God, on Amun-Ra, on the Egyptian god, and his displeasure. And then ultimately, if it happened a second time, well, time for a new pharaoh. <laughs> okay? Time to uh, find someone that's going to make another dynasty. Let's have a change of dynasty and see if we can please Amun-Ra and see if uh, he, he will restore the Nile to our, to our blessing. Leadership judgment leaves Egypt politically destitute. And in concept, I don't have to reteach this because this was a concept we taught and applied it to the Jewish people in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 4 through 15, where again you are left with capricious, childish, um, spiteful, um, junior high girl attitude, no offense, of, uh, of holding grudges and you can't be my friend anymore and, and, and all this snippy, snippy, snipey junk. Why do we want that in our politics? So review what we studied back in Isaiah chapter 3 in verses 4 through uh, 15 where the judgment upon the Jewish people was this very thing. I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. You know, if a three-year-old throws a temper tantrum, you just think, okay, that's sad. There's a three-year-old. We better just discipline them, and hopefully they'll grow up and grow out of it. Right? That's if they're under our house and you know, under our roof and in, in, in our responsibility to parent them and train them and bring them up. If they're in the White House, it's a different story. If they're in Congress, it's a different story. Okay? I'll pick on both sides. I'll pick on Democrats, Republicans, anything. All right? Because we just saw it in the, when, when uh, they offered up a challenge against Boehner and his House speakership. And now we see a temper tantrum and we find now there's, there's payback. And now there's uh, some of these, like Gomer and some of these other guys have lost their committees. Well, all right. I will make mere lads their princes and capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, each by the other, each one by his neighbor, this is the civil war attitude. We're seeing it in, in Isaiah related to Egypt. The youth will storm against the elder. We've got generational warfare. What happens when the youth rise up and realize, wait a minute, the baby boomers stole all our money? All right. At what point do they rebel and say, we're done? All right. Since they've already spent probably six generations worth now, Wow. Anyway, there's more on that, but I am running out of time. So review the notes you saw there on chapter 3. This divine judgment, let's get some happy news. This divine judgment will result in Egypt's dread of the land of Judah and their godly fear of the Lord. There's actually going to be a benefit to this fear. This divine judgment will result in Egypt's dread of the land of Judah and their godly fear of the Lord. Verses 16 through 20 here in Isaiah chapter 19. This has never happened historically. At any point of time have the Egyptian people been humbled to submit to the Jewish people for doctrinal teaching. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women. <laughs> Don't take offense. 
that's only an insult in certain ways. Okay. Uh, they will become like women in terms of the battlefield where they don't have the physical strength to go face to face with um, the men that are coming in to wage war. And it goes on to say, they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which is going to wave over them. Again, it's the threat of the pending judgment. He's about to come. His hand is waving. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt because that's where the the, uh, assault can be launched from at any time. At any time he so chooses, he can turn towards them and just go crush them. So everyone to whom it is, uh, so the land of uh, Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it. You just have to say, land of Judah. And they'll go, ooh. Okay. Because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. Yahweh Sivayoth, Lord of hosts, his name. The battlefield name of Jesus Christ in glory. And it just drives them to fear. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. When has that ever happened historically? When is it that they would they become a tribute to the Jewish people? And one of them, I think that's one of the five, here's a huge debate, is that a sixth city beyond the five? Or is it one of the five? Either way, one will be called the city of destruction. The city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord near its border. Clarence Larkin thought this was the Great Pyramid and he got kind of goofy on some things. All right? Which is unfortunate because Clarence Larkin's a marvelous author. I recommend Clarence Larkin seven days a week. I recommend Clarence Larkin. I just say, look out for that pyramid paragraph. Right? That pyramid chapter. Just take that away. But the rest of it's good stuff. Most of it. A lot of it. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. That catches our attention because in the theocracy, the altar was in the Holy of Holies. The altar was in Jerusalem. The altar is on Mount Zion. But here they're going to have a special Egyptian altar to Yahweh in the midst of Egypt. And a pillar to the Lord near its border. Pillars were were lifted up like Laban and and Jacob. They put up a pillar to mark the, the boundary between them, put a pillar of peace, a witness and a testimony that, hey, we're with you guys, (laughs) okay? We are on your side. We are serving your God. And he, and, and they're responding in fear and they're responding in humility. They will cry out to the Lord because of oppressors. They're going to learn what Israel has to learn in the great tribulation. Salvation is of the Lord. And he will send them a savior and a champion and he will deliver them. So right after I write my book about the cruel master and the mighty king, um, I'll milk that for all it's worth, and then I'll write the sequel, go on all the radio shows and TBN and whatever, and the sequel will have to feature this character, the savior and the champion who will deliver Egypt. (laughs) I'm joking, of course. I'm not here to make money. 
The divine judgment will result in Egypt's dread of the land of Judah and their godly fear of the Lord. I find this extraordinary. We've already discussed the fact that in the Exodus, all the Gentile nations were terrified by what the Lord did in Egypt. We saw that already in the Joshua 2 chapter. There's more than that. It was prophesied in Exodus 23. There's even maybe a, a better promise in Exodus 15. think um, we won't have to turn to all of these. I won't have time to turn to all of these, but um, all the Gentile nations were terrified because of one thing. And where did that take place? It took place in Egypt. Now what's going to happen eschatologically? Now fear from outside of Egypt is going to be focused in that land itself. And they're going to repent. And they're going to turn to Yahweh. And they are going to embrace the God of Israel to be their God. They're going to give over five of their own cities to a Jewish culture. They're going to set up an altar to Yahweh in Egypt. And God's going to bless them. He's going to honor that. And they're going to have the, the superhighway from Egypt to Jerusalem. Even all the way to Assyria here at the end of this chapter. Okay. Exodus 15. We've reached the point in the error where I'm the last one flipping. That's okay. Just listen. I'll read it for you. Exodus 15, 14 through 16. They, this is, I love this chapter because they just got through walking through the Red Sea. They're on the dry ground on the other side. The Red Sea came crashing down, destroyed Pharaoh and all those armies. And Moses composes this song And they sing this song here in this chapter. And in singing the song, they say in verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling grips them and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you, whom you have purchased. And so this very dread, as he brought them out of Egypt and before he brings them into the Red Sea or into the land of Canaan, that very dread will be repeated at Second Advent. Joshua 2, that was Rahab in verses 10 and 11. Joshua 5, 1, they're all scared because of what happened at Jericho, what happened at Ai. Joshua 9, verses 9 and 10. Joshua 10, verses 1 through 15. All these early chapters of Joshua. You do know that Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent of Jesus, right? Okay? Yes. The Hebrew, Joshua. The Hebrew, uh, Yahashua or Yeshua comes into Aramaic as Yeshua. It's, uh, it's the Greek Jesus from the New Testament. And here's uh, the conqueror who brings Israel into their land after Moses leads them out of, out of Egypt. What a great foreshadowing of what happens when Jesus brings Israel into the land after Armageddon. All right, uh, real quickly. Joshua 5.1 came about when the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, they heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, their hearts melted. There was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. No spirit in them any longer. All of their demonic empowerment was removed, confined to the abyss. And these puny 
humans were left without their uh, demonic empowerment. Chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Even the, here's the Gibeonites, and they, they uh, those sneaky little guys, they, um, they put on this deception operation to try, they knew they were going to get crushed. So they put on all these old garments and all this old worn out stuff and acted like they just traveled 6,000 miles to get here. And uh, turns out they were just, you know, a few miles up the road, but they acted like they came from all this far distance wearing all this worn out clothes and stuff. And they confess, man, we're terrified of you guys. We want to come and be your slaves. And so they said to Joshua, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. We have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. And so our elders and said in this far country of ours, said, take provisions and go. And, and so here we are. You know, this bread was warm when we took it out. Our clothes were new when we left. We came from a very far away place. And the sad thing is, as Joshua bought into it, didn't inquire the Lord, didn't ask about it, said, oh, okay, we'll make peace with you. You can be our servants. And then he learned too late that, oh, no, they're right, right up the road. You were supposed to kill those guys and take their land. Anyway, and then finally chapter 10, the first 15 verses of the chapter, Adonizedek, not Melchizedek, but Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and utterly destroyed it. And, and he feared greatly. This whole chapter talks about how terrified they were. So, in the Exodus, all the Gentile nations were terrified by what the Lord did in Egypt. At Armageddon, Egypt is going to be terrified by what the Lord will do to all the Gentile nations that are attacking Jerusalem. Remember, when Antichrist gathers all the forces of the world together, he gathers them in the valley of Har Megiddo, gathers them together to try to attack Jesus Christ, to try to keep the second advent from happening. Good luck with that. All right. And Egypt is going to be terrified by what the Lord is doing. Egypt will be terrified by what the Lord will do to all the Gentile nations attacking Israel. And this theater of operations is quite interesting to connect this together. Again, there's more work to be done, all right? Is this mid-trib, pre-trib, or is this um, in the first half of the seventh, uh, 70th week? Is it in the last half? Is it before it even starts? Is it preparatory to the coming of Armageddon? How exactly do we relate this to Ezekiel 38 and 39? How do we relate this to Psalm 83? How do we relate this to Revelation 19? That's deeper than we're prepared to go in this study. Luke 21, here's what Jesus promised. Centuries after the Babylonian uh, defeat of Egypt. So if you've got a commentary that says, oh, well, chapter 19 was fulfilled in Babylon... First of all, you're ignoring what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 46, and you're ignoring what Jesus said, and you've got other confusion going on. But Luke 21, verses 25 and 26. There will be signs and sun and moon and stars on the earth, dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
the cloud will come and the demons themselves are going to be dismayed. The idols will be dismayed. So again, you connect Luke 21, 26 back to Isaiah 19. And I think you do real well with it. Following the battlefield victory of Jesus Christ, Egypt will surrender five cities for Jewish occupation and instruction in Bible doctrine. What a blessing that's going to be. What a blessing that's going to be. These five cities, Hebrew will be the spoken language. You're going to study under the, the, the biblical teaching of the Jewish people. Egypt will be one significant theater operation in the Armageddon campaign with a savior and a champion to deliver them. Now that may end up being Christ himself, may not. I haven't settled my mind on that question. Okay, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's got a complete study on this. All the different campaigns of all the different theaters of Armageddon, including Jordan and, and uh, uh, Egypt and Lebanon and all the regions around Jerusalem itself. But Egypt is going to be one significant theater of operations with a savior and a champion to deliver them. Then finally, this godly axis from Egypt to Assyria with the holy highway. The, um, you know the Gaither song, Holy Highway? You know the song I'm talking about? It comes from this chapter. Also chapter 35 later on. The millennial reign of Jesus Christ will feature a trinity of nations to bless the earth. Amazingly enough, Egypt and Assyria... In that day, there will be a highway. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Of course, Jerusalem's right in between. And the Assyrians will come to Egypt, the Egyptians to Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. He opens up a trinity of geographical locations where Yahweh himself can be worshipped. One Jewish, two Gentile. whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. I'm sorry we get one Sunday to try to teach this whole chapter. Because that verse right there takes a lot of work. In fact, if we didn't have this chapter, we'd look at all those titles and say, well, that's all Israel. Israel's my people. Israel's the work of my hands. Israel's my inheritance. Why is he breaking this forth now from Israel to include Egypt and Assyria in this millennial blessing? Well, we'll get more in chapter 35. The highway theme introduced here is expanded in chapter 35, and we'll deal with that uh, 17 weeks from now. How about that? We'll get there uh, 16 weeks from now. Lord willing and uh, rapture pending. Father, I'm thankful that you're in charge of all this. And Father, there's some, there are some amazing things coming up. And Father, uh, your son is going to come back and he's going to conquer and we're going to be with him. What a delight. And of course, we can't come back from heaven with him unless we are first in heaven with him. And so Father, I do thank you for our blessed hope. I thank you for the pending rapture of the church, for the trumpet that could sound even today where the Lord himself will descend with a shout with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are, remain, who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. 
Father, I do pray for um, that blessed hope, for a perspective on that blessed hope, for brothers and sisters that are so wrapped up in worldly stuff that they don't even pay attention that, to their spiritual life or the truth of your word or to our accountability, Father. Today I can be standing before the beam of seat and watching the gold, silver, precious stones, the wood, hand stubble. Father, I pray for diligence. I pray for these prophetic studies. These aren't, these aren't hopeless studies to just throw up our hands and say, oh, well, who can figure this stuff out? These are encouraging studies. Encouraging studies to know that no matter how the heavens of the earth are shaken, the, 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 the foundations of the earth are shaken, no matter Armageddon and the, and, and the demons flooding this world, your son remains in control. And Father, we, uh, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So I thank you for the confidence we have in prophecy, the confidence we have in, in all of your word, for the eternal life that we have in Christ. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen.